Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. Leviticus 16, and we'll, we'll look at some verses as we go through the study tonight. If you notice on your handout, uh, if you don't have a handout, they're up here. Uh, and there's some more pins here, too, if you need one. If you'll notice on the handout, the outline, and we've talked about the chiastic structure of this book from week to week, that uh, we begin with a theme and end with a theme, and then those same themes are sort of sandwiched uh, in between those two ending themes. So beginning and ending with sacrifices, then the priesthood, laws of clean and unclean, holy and unholy, and right here in the middle is the center of the book, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you in a minute that it's the center of more than that, um, the Day of Atonement, this one, one chapter. So let's talk about that, that this is the center of this book. Well, Leviticus itself is the center of the Pentateuch. So remember the Pentateuch, if you can just remember Penta, Pentagon, five sides. Pentateuch is just the five books. The first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The first five books, the five, the five books of Moses, or what we might just call the law or the Torah. Leviticus is the center book of the Pentateuch. And remember, with all the action of Genesis and all the action and movement of Exodus as the people come to Sinai, Leviticus is there only at the foot and at the peak with Moses and God of Sinai. And then we move into Numbers and Deuteronomy, we have more movement all the way to the Promised Land. So there's a stillness and a centrality to this book that says how important it is that we find it at the center of the Pentateuch in one location as God gives these instructions on how he is to be worshipped. And if you notice our chiastic structure outlined for the book, not only is Leviticus the center of the Pentateuch, but this chapter, the Day of Atonement, is the center of the book of Leviticus. It is the center of the center. It is the Tootsie Roll center of the Tootsie Pop. I know, I hate Tootsie Pops. It's the bubblegum center of the blow pop. Is that better? Yeah, okay. That's my language too. And if you think about it, this then makes this the center of the entire Old Testament law. Those books that we've classically categorized as law, those first five books, the Pentateuch, the Torah, then this becomes the center of the center of the law itself. So as we think about God's Old Covenant law, God's Old Testament law, the Day of Atonement takes center stage in all of that. And, and that's why these, these chiastic structures, you know, we don't just talk about them to talk about them because it's interesting. It does show us something about how the book was put together. And by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we see the climax of this book and really the climactic point of the whole law here in this, uh, these instructions about the Day of Atonement. And we're going to unpack the various parts of the Day of Atonement today. And of course, we're going to end looking at the big picture and how all this points us to the gospel and to Jesus. First of all, let's talk about the preparation for the Day of Atonement. The preparation for the Day of I'm sorry, I skipped all those blanks up front, didn't I? Let's, let's do the rest of the blanks and then we'll move on. The Day of Atonement is separate from the other feasts. We find uh, instruction for the other feast in Leviticus 23 towards the end of the book. And it's interesting then that this day or this feast, the Day of Atonement, has its own separate section. Furthermore, that is wedged between the laws of purity 
and the laws of holiness. So what we looked at the last two weeks with the laws of clean and unclean meats, and then what uh, Jared had the pleasure of going through last week with clean and unclean bodily functions, and then what we'll see after this with sins and unholiness and what defiles a person and things like that, wedged right in the middle of that then is this idea of atonement, a covering for impurity and unholiness. Okay, so to reiterate, Day of Atonement is the center of the center of the law, and it's wedged right there, separate from all the other feasts, between these big themes of purity and holiness, and it deals with how we may be made right with God through atonement. All right, now let's move on to the preparation for the Day of Atonement. In the first 10 verses, we see these instructions for preparation. Now, as we think about the idea of atonement, you know this isn't the first time we've seen the concept. In fact, in those uh, offerings that we looked at in the first several chapters of Leviticus, we saw sin offerings and guilt offerings. And remember, we saw that repeated pattern that they shall make atonement for them. They shall make atonement for them. And he shall be forgiven and he shall be forgiven. This idea of atonement has already been presented to us. So this doesn't stand alone because atonement is too complex for one ritual to express. Remember those other sin offerings and guilt offerings dealt with unintentional sins. They dealt with things that were done in error or by mistake that you maybe later realized and came to repent for. And there was atonement made before God and there was restitution made with your neighbor. So we already have this idea of wrongdoing and being made defiled and being sinful and that needing to have atonement or a covering for a person to be made right and to be welcomed into God's presence. So this is not a new concept. It doesn't stand alone in that regard, but it is unique in a few of its expressions. Whereas the sin offering and the guilt offerings are offered on a daily basis, the Day of Atonement is, as you can tell by the name, one day, one time, and only once a year, And when it happens, the high priest enters the Holy of Holies. You remember in all the other offerings, if there's anything done with the veil or the Holy of Holies, it's merely the blood being sprinkled on the the veil. But never does anyone go into the veil, into the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant, what they would have called the mercy seat, was. You don't go in there ever. Yes, not allowed to go back there at all unless God cleans it I don't know maybe he shines it up it's bloody and dusty and dirty all the time yeah that's true we got off track Uh, (laughs) so amidst all the complex pictures that go with atonement the day of atonement is unique in that it is once a year One day, one person now goes into the Holy of Holies, which is the inner sanctum there in the tabernacle, and then later the the temple, which is the, the permanent version of the tabernacle. So as we think about going into the Holy of Holies, what's so significant? What's so important about this one day? One day, one time, one person they go actually into the Holy of Holies. Why is it so significant that someone goes into, what's so special about the Holy of Holies? It's the presence of God, the glory of God. Anything else? God has told them not to except for this one time a year. That's very important. Remember, Leviticus is about God telling us how he is to be worshipped and how he is to be approached, and we cannot just come to God on our own terms. So the fact that one person is able to go in shows both God's wrath and that if you go in another time, you'll die, but it also shows his love and his grace and that these are welcomed into that. So the second question kind of goes with that. What are the consequences for disobedience? Well, there's really only one consequence, and it's death. You go in uh, unwelcomed, uninvited, impure, defiled, unclean, no atonement made for yourself. One misstep there in the presence of God, and God says they would die. 
In fact, uh, let's just look at these first several verses of Leviticus 16. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. Now there's a theme for you. Remember the death of the two sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, who offered strange fire to the Lord? Remember and how it said they did something the Lord had not commanded them to do? And he struck them dead for it. So here at the beginning on these laws about the Day of Atonement, we have a reminder about that. We have a reminder of this theme. You can't just come to God any old way you choose. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. So you may not die. Remember when... The glory of God, the holiness of God struck out. Remember, the word was lashed out against Nadab and Abihu. Later on, when Uzzah touches the ark, when they're bringing it back, and it says the anger of the Lord lashed out at Uzzah, and he died. That's the warning. And so we, we see wrath, and we see anger true. That they, You can't just come into God defiled and sinful and uninvited, or you'll die. But there's grace in the fact that he tells you, don't come in, don't come closer. Follow my instructions and you will be accepted. Don't follow my instructions and you will die. He could have just left us to die. He could have just left it. In fact, when Adam sinned in the garden, he could have struck us dead then and never been in human race. Just start all over with something else. But the fact that he proceeds with judgment, proceeds with warning, but then shows grace and mercy in giving us warnings and telling us how to come to him, we see both the grace and the mercy and also the wrath and the anger of God. So there is significance to the fact that this priest is welcomed now into the Holy of Holies one time a year. What is unique about the sacrificial offerings? Well, there's one thing that's really unique about the sacrificial offerings for the Day of Atonement in that there are two animals, two animals present, okay? One, in verses 11 through 14, one goat is killed, and its blood is put on the altar, and it is burned, okay, sprinkled with the blood of this goat. But then in verses 20 through 22, uh, and actually earlier than that, we see another goat that the priest lays his hands on, and then that goat is driven into the wilderness, in fact, let's look at this, uh, starting in verse 11. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house and shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small and he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat and on, e on the east side. And on front of the mercy seat shall he sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Verse 15, then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people. So first there's this offering for Moses and the priest. And then we commence with the actual offerings of the day of atonement, which first includes verse 15, the slaying of a goat as a sin offering. But then in verses 21 through 22, we see another goat on which the priest lays his hands, and it says in verse 22 that this goat is set free in the wilderness. Call it the scapegoat. In fact, if you look earlier in verse 10, verse 10, we have this brief mention of the scapegoat. When they cast lots to see which goat will die and which goat will be driven into the wilderness, it says, verse 10, But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. So one of the classic little questions about this whole section is who or what is Azazel? There's nothing in the text that tells us what it is. Is it a what? Is it a pronoun? Is it a who? Uh, in fact, some of your footnotes might say the actual translation is uncertain what this means. There are, there's one interpretation that says it, it means a demon or Satan, the devil. That this, this goat is 
symbolically bearing the sins of the people back to where they came from. So as it goes out into the wilderness, there's this symbolism that that goat is returning to Satan. Okay, maybe. More interesting that the two words that seem to combine to make this word just mean the goat that basically the goat that gets away (laughs) as Azel. We might probably get our English word scapegoat from this word. As you look at this word Azazel, you see a goat that gets away, a goat that lives. More than likely, that's what it's referring to. Just the idea that this goat bears the sins away while the other goat dies. The lots are cast, one goat gets killed for the sin offering, one goat gets sent into the wilderness. And in fact, that's clarified in verse 22. It says that the goat is sent away to go free in the wilderness. And we'll we'll talk a little bit more about that later. So there's a lot of interesting and unique things about these offerings that aren't true of the other offerings. It's only once a year. It's offered by the high priest. They go into the Holy of Holies. There's the offering made for the priest. And then there are two goats, one that goes away and one that is killed. So while we've seen the idea of atonement before, the expression here on the Day of Atonement seems more serious there's a lot more involved and there's a lot more unique elements that go into these offerings for the day of atonement so let's talk then about what we read there in verses 11 through 14 the atonement for the priests you notice in verses 11 through 14 that the high priest must atone for himself first before he's able to do anything else offering the goat of the sin offering or the scapegoat offering he must kill a bull and offer an atonement sacrifice for his own sins. And that's what atonement tells us. Atonement is needed for this priest because this priest is a sinner. That aside from the covering of the blood of this sin offering, that priest is unclean. That priest is defiled. And if he would step into the Lord's presence in that way, not only would he die but there would be no one to offer a sin offering on behalf of the people, and they would die in their sins. And so there's a real seriousness attached to this priest and making sure that he atones for himself first. Before he does anything else, he needs to deal with his own sin, and then he may deal with the sins of the people. We see a lot, and we've talked about this already, of the the sprinkling of the blood, whether it's on the mercy seat or the altar or the veil or this altar or this piece of furniture. The idea of the blood being sprinkled on something, remember in our first lesson, I think, that they saw the blood as a kind of detergent that cleansed the, the tabernacle, that cleansed and purified the tabernacle from the sins of the people from the impurity and the uncleanness that was all around it, there was a symbol that as this blood is spilled and the life of this animal is then applied, traded out for the life of the people, that blood deals with not just the guilt of the sin, but the stain of the sin. It deals with the guilt of the people, but it also deals with the consequences of that sin and that uncleanness in the presence of God. So that, again, so that what is going to happen next actually can take effect because if the priest is defiled his work is void if the elements of the tabernacle remain defiled the work is voided but if the priest makes atonement for himself and then purifies the place God is showing us that through the purification of the application of the blood the priest's work is validated and the furniture and the pieces of the tabernacle actually do what they're meant to do okay only when the blood is applied So what does all of this tell us about these sacrifices? Think about it. The priest must offer one for himself because he's a sinner. He must purify the tabernacle because it's defiled, and it will become defiled again, as will he. And whoever the high priest is the next year, he's got to go in again, offer for himself, purify the tabernacle, which has become defiled, What does all this kind of bring to mind about the nature of these sacrifices? As important and serious as they are, what what do we see in a pattern there? Hmm? They don't last very long because either the priest dies or he becomes sinful again, which is bound to happen, 
or the place and the furniture itself is defiled. And so it has to keep on going. It's incomplete. It's unfinished. It applies the picture for a while, but it's unable to hold on to the reality of it. And that's intentional. Okay, this isn't, mis- this is, this isn't a mistake by God. Like, oops, I didn't know it wouldn't last that long. <laughs> you messed up again. He knows there's, there's a purpose to it going on and on and on and on. And we'll see that later when we get to the big picture. All right, so the atonement for the priest, then let's talk about the atonement for the people, starting there in verse 15. After the priest offers the bull for himself, purifies himself, purifies the tabernacle, now we can actually do the work of making atonement for the people. And it's interesting if you look at verse 16 that we have a a different word used here. Whereas with the guilt and the burnt offerings, they were unintentional, missteps, mistakes. But what do we have in verse 16? Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people and because of their transgressions. Look at verse 21. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the live goat, this is the scapegoat, and confess over it all the iniquities, guilt, iniquities of the people, and all their transgressions. The sins covered on the Day of Atonement are specifically mentioned as transgressions. Now, it's really helpful for us to understand these different words for the idea of sin, especially in the Old Testament. A sin is anything that doesn't comport with God's law. That can be unintentional. It can be a mistake, a misstep. Doesn't mean that God doesn't care. Because in the sin and the burnt offerings and the guilt offerings, we see that he does care, and atonement is still necessary even for those unintentional sins. But then we see it go a level deeper here with the word transgression. This is not unintentional sins. These are not simple mistakes or missteps. Oops, I didn't know. These are deliberate, what the Bible calls high-handed sins. Deliberate, intentional, willful transgressions. I don't think it's wise to just substitute these words, but you might think of the word trespass. That when you go, um, think about going to someone's property or something, and, and they put a sign there that says, no trespassing. Why? That, to leave the person who does trespass with no excuse. That they're either going to get shot or attacked by a dog or arrested. Because I told you this is my property, you may not come on this property. That's a, that's a trespass. Same idea with a transgression. Not just a mistake, not just a misstep. This is a willful, deliberate disobedience of God's command. We would call it a sin of omission, or a sin of commission. That we know what to do, we don't do it, or we know what not to do, and we do do it. Okay? Sin of transgression. Knowing, willful, and deliberate. Also worth noting that these were not covered in the daily sacrifices. Well, no, just representative for all the people. I think, I'm assuming here, I think he would probably just go through the, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and, and confess on behalf of the people that we've put other gods before you, we've worshipped idols, we've taken your name in vain, we've not kept your Sabbath day holy, we've not honored our Father, you know, those kind of things. That's, that's the way I would interpret it anyway. Because you don't have person by person going up to the priest and telling him their sins and him, okay, let's, it, it's an it's a act on behalf of the people by the priest that covers all the possible intentional sins of the people. Well, there's a public, there's a public part to the, to the sacrifice we'll see later, uh, and they are present, most of them, for the burnt offering following the release of the scapegoat. That's followed up by the offering of the burnt offering. Yeah. So why do these sins require special attention? Why just uh, all the unintentional sins, all the unintentional sins are covered daily. 
and they're just taken care of through the guilt and the burnt offerings. That as people come, they realize their error, they realize a mistake, they come and they offer an offering, atonement is made, they're forgiven for these unintentional missteps, mistakes. So why only one day a year, not daily, only one day a year, God deals with transgression? Well, because there is a far more serious, not in terms of its sin or not sin, but a far more serious degree of sin when you know what to do and don't do it, or when you know what not to do and you do it anyway. It's the difference, again, between making a mistake, oops, I didn't know, I didn't understand, nevertheless still serious with God, it's the difference between an ignorant sin and what we said, a high-handed, knowledgeable, deliberate, willful rebellion against something you know that God has said to do or God has said not to do. And so there's a seriousness to it. We're going to deal with this only once a year. And all of these laws and rituals go into dealing with it once a year. Once a year, one day, one man, holy of holies, only time, one sacrifice on behalf of the people for these intentional, deliberate sins and rebellion against God. It also shows us the grace of God, doesn't it? And that we see that God is concerned with sin, yeah, on an everyday uh, mistake level through the guilt and the sin offerings. But he doesn't just leave us hanging through those intentional sins. In other words, God's, God could say, okay, here's what I'll do. I'll provide atonement for those mistakes. Okay, a mistake is a mistake, and we're all going to make mistakes. We all mess up. God says, okay, I understand that. He winks and says, I'll provide a way to cover for those. But if you know what you're doing and you deliberately disobey me, he could, very well could have said, you're on your own. I mean, you make a mistake, I'll provide a way of escape for that. But you deliberately disobey me and violate my commandments, tough noogies, you're on your own, and I'm not going to provide any atonement for that. But there is grace and that God says, no, I'm going to provide forgiveness for that too. Even when you willfully rebel against me and what you know I've told you not to do or told you to do, I will still make atonement. I'll still make a way for you to be made right with me. And I love that it's one day a year. Why? It shows God's grace. He gives us more than we deserve, providing atonement for these intentional sins. But it also kind of, in a way, because it's once a year, I think it demonstrates not to take that for granted that we should never presume upon God's grace and God's forgiveness okay I think both pictures are there I think it's worth keeping again with the wrath and the grace and now we have the warnings and the promise and so the day of atonement shows us both God's willingness to forgive even those rebellious sins but it also shows us the seriousness of those willful sins before a holy God Lastly, we have the closing celebrations in verses 23 through 28. Now, who has the study guide, the, the little orange 12-week study guide? Y'all have that? Anybody read it this week? Look at it. Okay, if you read it, look at it this next week. Um, let's just talk about this here. Fill in the blank first. The high priest changes back into his normal robes. Back in verse 4 of chapter 16, when the high priest goes in to begin this ceremony of atonement, he takes off his priestly garments and he puts on um, just simple linens. So like a white, simple, monochromatic wardrobe. Okay, takes off the blue and all the fancy stuff, puts back on just the white, simple linens to go into the Lord's presence. It says in verse 23 that once he does the stuff in the tent... He takes off the linen garments, puts them back into the holy place and leaves them there, washes himself. He comes out in verse 24, puts the priestly robes back on, and then offers the burnt, burnt offering of the people to make atonement for himself and for the people. Now, the study guide, I, I, I was just perplexed kind of <laughs> looking through it today. And, th I mean, those guys are way smarter than I am, granted. But I think they're, they're making, 
I think they try to make something there that's not there. <laughs> because one of the questions, and if you're looking, at, I just want you to be aware when you look at the study guide. One of the questions is, you know, what is the significance of the priest putting on the linens and then doing the sacrifices and then putting back on? And the study guide, I think, uses the phrase glorious robes. Now, I'm reading that, and I think I know where they're trying to go. They're trying to have this picture of the priest humbling himself and putting on the simple linen, doing the work of atonement, and then when it is done, he puts back on his glorious robes, and the work is finished. Now, you can see the picture I think they're trying to paint there. Jesus humbles himself, takes on the form of a servant. He takes off his glory. He puts on a simple garb of human flesh. He performs the work of atonement. And when it is finished, he ascends. He is exalted. He puts back on his glorious robes. My problem is, and I started reading that, and you can tell me if I'm reading something wrong. But in verse 24, once he takes off the linens in verse 23, he bathes his body and puts back on his regular garments, verse 24, and then he offers the burnt offering to make atonement for himself and for the people. You see that, don't you? That's what I'm reading anyway. He doesn't do all the work with the linens on, and then when it's done, put back on the glorious robes, and you don't see that phrase in there anywhere, glorious robes. I mean, I, I see what they're trying to do, and I respect it because I like that kind of picture too. But I just don't think it's there. <laughs> Here's the simple picture I think is here. The holy garments that he uses inside the tent to go into the holy of holies, those holy linens, which it actually says that in, back in verse 4. It actually calls them holy linen coat. Okay, so there's something special about this. And it might picture humility, that he's taking off all the pretty colors and he's coming into God's presence bare and stripped down with this bare linen coat. That, that's there. But he takes off that holy garment and leaves it there, puts back on his regular priestly robes to come out and perform the burnt offering for himself and for the people. So while I more than respect the folks that wrote the book and, and really do want to see that picture there because that's right up my alley with types and pictures and symbols and stuff. I, I just don't think that part is there. The only lesson I see is that these holy garments may not be used for common things. So what are some ways that this change has been interpreted? You can write uh, incarnation. Jesus, when the incarnation, when he becomes a man, People have said, well, the putting on of that robe and the taking on of this, that's Jesus putting on flesh and then putting back on uh, his glory. Uh, maybe that's there, but I, I don't see it. I think simply what's there is that they have to go into the Holy of Holies with these holy garments, and they have to be left there. And when he returns out of the tent to normal life to perform these sacrifices for sin, he has to put back on his regular priestly robes. Now, if you're reading that this week and you're looking at the study guide and you, you somehow see what they're saying and I missed something, by all means, text me or call me and let me know something I missed. But um, I'm, the order that they try to put that in just, just isn't there. All right, let's go to the big picture and let's talk about what this has to do with Jesus, the gospel, and kind of round it out. The Day of Atonement along with the rest of this book, centers on the work of the priest. In fact, the name of the book, Leviticus, concerning the Levites, is what it means, dealing with the sons of Aaron and the tribe of Levi that would become the priestly tribe. Okay, so the, the very name of the book, at least what we have is the name of the book, tells us what the book is about, dealing with the work of the priest. And the Day of Atonement specifically is the work of the high priest. These priests represent the people before God. It's as if when they come into the presence of God, remember the stones that are on their breast and the stones that are on their shoulders that bear the names of the 12 tribes and the 12 sons of Israel. There's a, there's a sense in that, that picture that the priest is 
bearing the people with him into the presence of God. That on the normal basis of entering the holy place, not the most holy place, but the holy place before the holy of holies, he literally is, is bringing the people's names with him before the presence of God. So the, the priest represents the people before God. But every time we turn around, we see that the priest must first atone for himself. Even back in the guilt and the sin offerings, remember? The, the very first person it mentions in the guilt offering is the priest. If the priest sins, this is how he makes atonement for himself. And there in the, in the day of atonement, the high priest, before he does anything else, must make atonement for himself. And as we talked about earlier, this deals with the unfinished nature of this sacrificial system. It shows us that this is incomplete, imperfect, and will never be finished. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 7, and if you want to put a marker in, in Leviticus and turn to Hebrews, that will be helpful for you because we'll be there for a few passages. Hebrews 7 uh, verse 26 in the New Testament says, It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests, these we're reading about in Leviticus, not just to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he has done this once and for all. So the author of Hebrews picks up on that too, and I think it's fairly obvious. We said it earlier, the fact that it keeps on going, the fact that the priest's job is never done, that the sin and the guilt offerings are daily, and the Day of Atonement, although it is just once a year, is still every year, and it keeps on going, and he has to make atonement for himself before he dares do anything for the people, and he has to atone for the tabernacle itself before he does anything for the people. It shows us just the ongoing, unfinished, incomplete, imperfect nature of these sacrifices. Further, we see that the Day of Atonement centers on the most holy place. Isn't it interesting that in the, the Pentateuch, the five books, at, at the center of it there is Leviticus, and then at, at the center of Leviticus is the Day of Atonement. And when you think about the construction of the tabernacle and the temple, what you have except the courtyard, and then the holy place inside the tent, and then there at the center of it all is what? The most holy place, the Holy of Holies the presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant. So even in the picture of the literary devices, we see the coming in to the presence of God of the priest. And so the whole thing literarily and literally centers on the Holy of Holies at the center of the tabernacle and then later the temple. Unlike, though, the temples of the nations around them, Israel did not think that this was the literal house of God, as if he could be contained there. His presence was there. Absolutely, his glory was there, but it wasn't just there. In fact, later when they complete the temple and Solomon is dedicating the temple, in his dedication prayer, he says, Oh God, the heavens cannot contain you. He understands we, we didn't build this temple and then earlier this tabernacle to contain God in some sort of little box, some little exhibit to, to go and see God in. He's not contained there, though he has put his glory there. So unlike the other nations, remember the other nations, you go into a temple. Everybody been, anybody been to Nashville? I mean, I've been, I lived there. Hey, did you go to the Parthenon? Have you been to the Parthenon? You go to the Parthenon, it's a replica of the, the big temple in uh, Ephesus maybe. Is it Diana that's supposed to be inside? Artemis? One of those. Well, you go inside this, this big Greek structure there in, in Nashville because it was the Athens of the South, right? Or is the Athens of the South. You go into the temple. What's there in this, uh, this replica of this pagan temple except a really tall, very impressive idol, right? Statue of a goddess. And every temple you would go into in the ancient world, especially in the ancient Near East and then Greece and Rome, you go into the temple for Zeus, why you go into the temple, what's there? Big statue of Zeus. You go into the temple of Diana, what's there? Big statue of Diana, and so on and so forth, as it is with every other false god and false worship system around Israel when they're about to go into the promised land. What happens when you go into the tabernacle or the temple? 
Well, first of all, if you're not a priest, you die. <laughs> Second of all, nobody goes into the Holy of Holies except the one guy, the high priest, once a year. And when you go in there, do you see a big statue of Yahweh? No. You see what they call the mercy seat, literally his footstool. That his temple is in the heavens and his presence is bigger than the expanse of the universe and yet he chooses to prop his feet up in the tabernacle in the temple putting his presence and his glory there so unlike the the the, the temples of all the nations around them they knew this couldn't contain God this wasn't his little house but that he was infinite and he was beyond time and space this was just a shadow of the true throne and the presence of God So, likewise, all that took place there was type and shadow. The tabernacle was not an end in itself. It pointed to the heavens and the presence of God in his throne room. The temple, as glorious as it was, Remember, even Solomon said, heavens can't contain you. I can't contain you surely here. This is just a picture of your glory that is beyond the heavens. So if the tabernacle is just a shadow and the temple is just, just a shadow and the priests themselves are just shadows and the sacrifices are just shadows, everything that goes on here is not an end in itself but a type, a model, an example a small picture of the actual reality. The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, Therefore he, that is Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people tabernacle was type and shadow everything they did in the tabernacle was type and shadow Hebrew says though Jesus the eternal son of God who Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 says was the very radiance of the glory of God was made like us in order to be our high priest. This deals with some, some, some fun doctrines, so just bear with me just for a second. If Jesus was only God and he only appeared to be a man, he could not then represent men before God, right? He, he, he could not be our representative if he was not a man, if he was all God and simply looked like a man. Other side is also true. If he's just a man and he's not God, then what do we learn from these men, priests, about the nature of his work? Well, he got to atone for himself first. And then even then, it would have to be year after year, day after day. It would never be done. But when you think about the person of Christ, you have one who is truly man and truly God who is eternally God, one with the Father and the Spirit, and became a man in order to be our high priest. Because in order to represent us before God, he had to be truly man. And in order to represent us all before God, he had to be also truly God. He's made like us to be our high priest. And when we look at the work that Jesus did, Jesus passed not through an earthly veil, but through the heavens. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14 says exactly that. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. You think about this high priest, this one day once a year, out of all the other days of the year, he comes into the tabernacle, does this thing, they eat the bread, they burn the incense, they do the offerings, they sprinkle the blood every single day. But there's a veil there that they dare not touch, let alone go through. And only once a year, 
the one high priest passes through the veil into the presence of God, taking his life in his hands to make atonement for the people. And Hebrews says that Jesus, through his person and his work, his resurrection and his ascension and his crucifixion, he passes through not some earthly curtain into an earthly room with the earthly Ark of the Covenant. No, Jesus passes through the heavens into the actual holy place of God. Whereas that was just a shadow, Jesus passes into that which was reality. Because Jesus alone is worthy to do this. And why is he alone worthy to do this? Because he is sinless. Chapter 4, verse 15, he goes on, We do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus alone is worthy to pass through the heavens into the actual holy place of God because he's without sin. Listen to what he says in Hebrews 7, verse 26. It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins. Why does he have no need to offer sacrifices for his own sins? Because he doesn't have any sins. He doesn't have any sins to atone for. He is completely and absolutely worthy to do that which the high priest could only do in type and shadow and even then incomplete, imperfect, and unfinished. Jesus' work then is revealed to us as no mere shadow but is the reality behind the shadow. I've used this illustration before, but it's just, it, it works. <laughs> you have a dark room, say this, this room is dark, and uh, the, one of these hallway lights is on, okay? And someone's coming down the stairs, they come to the doorway, and we know how light and shadows work, don't we? Dark room, light coming in, you see the light frame of the doorway on the floor, and the person standing there in the doorway, what, casts a shadow on the floor, it's just a shadow. It's just an image of the actual substance of the person standing there. The actual substance is the person standing in the doorway. That's what we see when we look at these pictures in the Old Testament, and then we look at the person of Jesus. In the Old Testament, Paul says we see these shadows and these types that are before us. They accurately represent the thing, the reality, but they're not the reality. They're a reflection, they're an image, they're a foretaste, a shadow of it. But Paul says in Colossians chapter 3 that the substance is Christ. The actual person in the doorframe casting the shadow is Jesus, who is the yes and amen to all of God's promises. So Jesus' work, his person, what he did, is not shadow. It is the reality behind all the shadow. And look at how the author of Hebrews says it, um, Starting in 728, the law appoints men and their weakness as high priests, but the word of God, the word of the oath which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever, Hebrews 8.1. Now the point that we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the majesty in, in heaven, a minister in the holy places, look at, these, look at this word, in the true tent the true tabernacle that the Lord has set up. Not man, not Moses, not Israel, but the Lord. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. This was a shadow, but the substance is Jesus. His is the true tent. He is the true priest. He is the true sacrifice, and he brings true and lasting atonement. Unlike these unfinished and ongoing sacrifices, Jesus' sacrifice was once and for all. 
Hebrews 7.25, he is able to save to the uttermost completely those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. You remember there at the beginning of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 1, Leviticus chapter 1 verse 3, how God says this is how you are to draw near to me. And then we have this litany of offerings and sacrifices. How does Hebrews 7.25 say we draw near to God? Through Christ, through his once and for all sacrifice, who always lives to make intercession for us as our great high priest. Jesus entered into the actual holy place through the veil of his own body. Jesus entered into the actual holy place through the veil of his own body. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 11 says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, there that is again, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And then in just one verse, chapter 10, verse 7, Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, Jesus opens the new and living way, not through an earthly veil, but through the ripping apart of his own body on the tree. Jesus bears our sins on himself and makes satisfaction before God. Now we hear this, these phrases all the time. And what is that noise? Okay. <laughs> I thought it was my phone. We think about these phrases all the time and, and, and we don't really give a second thought to them. We just read one in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 a few weeks ago on Sunday morning. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Or Isaiah 53, that he bore the chastisement that brought us peace. He's borne our sorrows, carried our grief. But then we also see language of satisfaction, or you might use a, a more fancy, a fancier theological word, propitiation, the removal, the expiation of sin. As Paul says in Romans 3.25, God put forth Jesus to be a propitiation, an atoning, substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. And we say, of course, he, of course he took away our sins. He bore our sins. He wipes away our sins. But do you see when you say those things how we're talking about the Day of Atonement? We're talking on one hand about the removal and the expiation of sin through the goat that is killed, paying the penalty for sin, but we're also talking about the scapegoat on whom the sin is laid and then carries it far away, maybe as far as the east is from the west. And so in Jesus, you see the fulfillment of both, that he both bears our sins on himself like the scapegoat and takes them away, but he also bears the punishment and the penalty for our sin, which is the wrath and the condemnation of God. Jesus fulfills both. Furthermore, while the priest must keep working, Jesus' work is done. See how many times in the book of Leviticus we have the daily sacrifices. Remember as we went through the food offerings how we had that repeated pattern. It's a sweet aroma. It's a sweet, well, of course we know by now, we know Moses, it's a sweet aroma, it's a food offering. It's a sweet aroma, it's a food offering. We kept seeing that pattern, didn't we? And then when we switched to the sin and the guilt offerings, what do we see? They shall make atonement. They shall make atonement. They shall make atonement. They shall be forgiven. They shall be forgiven. We get it. Ongoing. Repetitive. Never stops. Why? Because the people's sin never stops, and the priests keep dying, and their work is unfinished, and it's incomplete. Keeps on and keeps on. 
week after week, day after day, year after year. But Hebrews chapter 10 says when Christ, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice. How many more times can he say it though? How, how, how much more emphatic can he be about this being one thing? When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice, what did Jesus do? He sat down. <laughs> Jesus sat down. In the book, at the beginning of the book of Hebrews, probably my favorite passage in all of Scripture, uh, long ago at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Look at this. After making purification for sins. That word after means what? It's over with. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Oh, the book of Hebrews says the priest must stand daily in their service. Their work never ends. The people's sin never ends. Their work never ends. The sacrifices never end. The blood never ends. The sprinkling never ends. It never seems to stop. But when Jesus comes on the scene, a better high priest, a better sacrifice, the true tabernacle, the true temple, the true veil, the true altar, you just keep on going and going. He offers himself once for all, one time, and it's done. He makes purification so that purification is done. And then instead of standing daily in his office, what does he do? Figuratively, he gets to sit down because his job is done. As we come up to um, Easter and Holy Week, we do our Maundy Thursday service, and it's wonderful and it's beautiful. And if, if you haven't signed up to bring something yet, when you go upstairs tonight, be sure to sign up to bring something in the, the lobby. Um, but we do Maundy Thursday, and I know not every church does that. That's fine. And we have our Good Friday service, Jesus' death on the cross. And we have Easter Sunday, of course, which is every Lord's Day, really. We celebrate the resurrection of the Lord. But what about Holy Saturday? Anybody ever heard the term Holy Saturday? Holy Saturday, typically celebrated by, by Eastern Christians, but it's an important thing to remember. That after the work of Jesus was done, what did he get to do? He rested. God created the world in six days. And on the seventh day, he rested. That was the creation. And Jesus comes on the scene to bring in the new creation, a new Adam, a new race of people, the church. He does his work, and on that seventh day, he rests. Work is done. It's complete. And just like God says in Genesis, it is good God looks at the work of his son and says, it is good. And then when he rises to life on that first day of the week, it's the dawning of a whole new world, a whole new creation, a whole new covenant, because it was all fulfilled in the person of Jesus. So maybe, let, maybe next year we'll do something on Holy Saturday to commemorate that final work of Jesus and our our blessing to rest in him because his work is done all right i could preach longer but i'll pray thank you father for this opportunity to be together and thank you for the beauty of your word which in these ceremonies and rituals shows us the beauty and the glory of the gospel and uh, we we must take a step back tonight and admire your handiwork in putting the scriptures together the way that you did to paint this beautiful picture of the centrality of forgiveness and the centrality of atonement, and the centrality of the invitation to come into your presence and to be made whole. And we thank you that you've given us that in the person and the work of our great high priest, our lamb, the Lord Jesus. We thank you that his work is finished, his work is done, and there's nothing that we can add to it. We must simply rest in it. And so give us that rest in our souls and our hearts tonight. Help us to trust in Jesus for our salvation, for our forgiveness, 
to keep our focus and our attention on him, not just during this Easter season, but throughout the rest of our lives as we run this race to glory. We praise you and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.